Hey, Rockheads. This is Music to Code by Track 12. Check this out. Oh yeah, just what you need to get in the zone when you write code. And get this, we just added a site license. Download it once, share it with everybody in your office. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. Episode 1318, with guest Todd Gardner. Recorded Thursday, June 9th, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's another .NET Rocks from Norway. Indeed. Oslo, Norway. I like it here. It is nice. You know what's nice? We're out on the water last night. I know mm-hmm. you weren't with me because you were sleeping, yeah. But um, we're out on the water, and for about four hours, it's magic hour. Yeah. You know, where every picture that you take is great. You know, and I'm talking to Rob Connery, who f- grew up in Hawaii, and he's like, you know, that's what I miss about being... I love... He's li- living in Seattle now. He's, right. He loves the fact that the sunsets are long. Right. Whereas in Hawaii, they're short. The sun is over the water, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's dark. Interesting. Yeah, and maybe because of the curvature of the earth, I don't know, maybe there's, uh, who knows. But uh, for whatever reason, the further north you go, the longer the sun set takes to set. And in, in here, it actually never goes down this time of year. Yeah, we're I far enough north. I think it has north, something yeah. to do with like the direction the sun is going. Like mm. When you're closer to the equator, it's going straight down. Oh, yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah. when you're in the north, it's actually like going at a pretty aggressive angle. You and know? so there's a lot of time where it's just sliding across it. Thank you for that scientific explanation. And here, <laughs> I, I didn't know. We're at 60 degrees north here up in Oslo. Yeah. yeah. So at this time of year, the sun just goes below the horizon, moves oh, just around. just barely a bit, ticks yeah, under and, and then, then comes, comes right back up again. <laughs> it's never dark. Yeah. Right? Like if you actually need to sleep in a dark room, you're not going to get it with, with anything other than the blackout blinds. Yeah, right. Yep. So anyway, it was it was wonderful. I took so many pictures, but over the course of three hours, it was like magic hour. Where would be one hour of that back uh, back in Connecticut? Anyway, Funny. let's uh, roll the music for Better No Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, if you go to 1318.plop.me, which is the pattern we use here, show 1318, that brings you to decosoftware.com. And this is Deco IDE, which is an IDE for building React Native. And the big message on the site is that it's now free and Hmm. open source and Mac only. Uh, There isn't a download for Windows. There's a download for Mac. Okay. But apparently, if you're doing React Native uh, to build native apps for the way to go, this is uh, really cool. And just the site itself is pretty compelling about... Um, how they connect the controls in the IDE with the actual code. So you can, for example, set a slider to change the font size. 
And in your code, you see the font size number, the constant change. Uh, just very cool. Very cool stuff. It That's looks good. Man. And I know that there are people out there listening that would uh, welcome this news. Yeah. That's really neat. So we can do ID. some more React Native shows. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think I might even want to try it myself. So many technologies. Very cool. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1207, the one we did with Justin Searles about mature test-driven development. Mm. And that's what he really dug into, the sort of Detroit or classic TDD versus the London TDD, like just the idea that there are flavors to your test strategies. That was a while ago, wasn't it? Well, that wasn't that long ago. No, no. It's, it's uh, uh, October of 2015. Okay. Uh, but this comment comes from Matt Keane, who says, uh, Great show, guys. There are almost as many views on testing as there are developers. So it was really refreshing listening to the show and hearing a viewpoint incredibly similar to my own. Because nobody's smarter than somebody that agrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> I totally I agree. Yes. <laughs> Further to the part on mocks, I think somebody looking at some tests and having no clue what is going on is incredibly valuable. It points out that the design is probably not what it needs to be, and quite often it comes down to poor encapsulation. Starting top-down and defining other objects you want for your unit to talk to can really help with this. The interfaces between units become much more about how it is used by the client code rather than the implementation. Hmm. That, in turn, makes for mocking far more understandably, and somebody can read the actual tests. Another thought that came into my head listening to the show was how command query separation can really help make tests and mocks understandable. A command is something that can obviously be mocked and not care about the scope of the unit. Queries entail simple mocks, which return an expected value. This separation also tends to lead to better naming, making code and tests more readable as well. I think I shall think further on this and use it as fuel for my blog. I shall cogitate. Yes, I will think further upon these things. Yes, good. Uh, that's really cool, Matt, and I hope you did write some more blog posts on it because this was a few months ago. Right. And uh, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. We publish every show to Facebook and Google+. If you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We test them thoroughly. Nice. Yeah. And speaking of tests, let me introduce Todd Gardner. Todd H. Gardner is the president and co-founder of TrackJS, a JavaScript error reporting service for modern web applications. He's been building JavaScript web apps for many years for enterprises and startups and knows too well how they break. He lives in Stillwater, Minnesota, emails at Todd at TrackJS.com and tweets at Todd H. Gardner. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome back, nice man. Nice to be back. I thought it was uh, it was actually very cool that your comment today is like totally about testing. Like, uh, I totally want to riff off of some of those topics. You, that's exactly How why. would such a thing have happened? <laughs> I cannot imagine. It's like you planned it or it's something. something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to... If I'd gone back to your old show, we would have talked about duck punching. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and while a fine topic, <laughs> I didn't think it related quite as well to the show we're going to do. Because, <laughs> you know, not. we do have to have something to talk about. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can't just, you know... Well, I happen... Uh, speaking of the last show, I happen to know the guy who, who posted like one of the comments on there that was actually correcting something that I said wrong. He's a, he's a friend of mine <laughs> in Minneapolis. And he's like, dude, I got a mug out of, out of, uh, <laughs> out of your show. That's awesome. <laughs> because you said something wrong. Is that Kevin Hackinson? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kevin. I can see yeah. I, there it is. Yeah, I see it. Yep, he got a mug. 
So testing for failed projects just has an interesting allure to it, doesn't it? I mean... Yeah, that's half the trick of conference speaking, right? It's just getting that catchy title, title, right? Yeah, totally. (laughs) So... um, You've already done this session now, haven't you? No, I'm going to do it on Friday, but I have have shared similar talks before. Oh, sure. um, This talk is largely based off of my experience on a bunch of different projects and how most of them have failed for something related to how they approach testing. Interesting. Uh. And I have like a very broad view of testing. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not just a technical c- concept. It's like yeah. validating the project sure. concepts. But in every project gets tested. It's just generally on the customer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, that's even one of the use cases I have is like um, one of the projects I was on you know, they did everything wrong from a technical aspect. Like, they, they, like, I was working with this team, and when I joined them, I'm like, so, you know, tell me about your testing strategy. Like, how do you, how do you unit test stuff? And they're like, well, well, so a developer picks up a story, and, and then they'll code it, and then, you know, before the market is done, they'll, like, load the website and make sure it works. <laughs> oh. And I'm like, and you, no call, you call that unit testing. Yeah. I'm like, make that's sure. kind of just being a responsible adult, yeah. isn't it? As long as <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to check oh, that it's done before sure I say it's there's done. no 404, we're good. We're good. <laughs> okay. I don't feel like his, their definition of what, you know, testing was in mine. No, not the they same didn't really thing. share. It's so, like, they did like everything wrong, but they had like the ability that like, their users were totally captive mm. and they couldn't leave. Like they had a monopoly they, on they their They had to niche. use the software one way or the other. Right. Okay. And so mm. they launched this thing and it was buggy and it didn't really work, but it, it just kept on growing. Yep. So it's one of those apps and I'm sure like everybody's had them, but like you're in a company and it's the dirty old duct tape machine that just prints money for that company. Right. right? Yeah. Like it's 15 years old and everybody's scared of it and the yeah. developers always want to rewrite it. Right. But the business is like, no, nope. no, no, this, nope. this thing is just, this is printing hundred dollar bills. Like that we are not breaking this. Goose. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the kind of apps that are always bad are those afterthought apps for, from, uh, companies like for, and I'm not going to, name names AT&T but there's, a, <laughs> there's an app that you download called Passport from AT&T and the whole idea is that it finds hotspots while you're traveling abroad oh yeah makes a map of them and then while this app is running um, you know it connects you to those hotspots because they're free or whatever yeah. and so this is a a helpful thing, but it's an afterthought. Like AT&T's already got my money. There is no incentive for them to make this app work well. Consequently, it has less than one star out of five. <laughs> so on that vein, I actually just recently switched my, my uh, phone carrier to Google Fi, the oh, Google wow. project thing. Nice. And it's, it's the same idea, except it's just totally transparent. So like yeah. sometimes I'll walk into a bar or a restaurant or whatever, and it's part of Google's map of Wi-Fi. Mm. And like my phone will just tell me, I'm on Wi-Fi right now, and all of your calls and data are free because I just I know about this Wi-Fi and I've connected you. Right. Nice. Now the scary <laughs> thing is we We've learned from Troy Hunt, and not to get off on a rant here, but I will. <laughs> the scary thing is we learned from Troy Hunt is that if you leave your Wi-Fi on in the state where it will automatically connect to known networks, you will probably connect to networks that aren't actually the things that your phone thinks they are. For example, the ATT underscore 144 Wi-Fi, which is sort of the default Wi-Fi for a lot of AT&T-based router service or anything like that. And when you connect to it, it will, it will auto, your, your iPhone is, if you have AT&T on your iPhone, it's automatically going to connect to that when it yeah. sees it, even if it's never seen that particular one before. So somebody could use a pineapple 
that says it's att underscore one four four or whatever it is. Yeah, I don't know right. what it actually is. And then, you know, gather all your information. It all depends separate. on whether or not it's an open Wi-Fi versus an encrypted Wi-Fi. Right. And it's also, I mean, that problem is why everything's HTTPS now, right? Yeah. Because you can't trust the, the, that the network is real. So right. you have to be sure that your communications aren't Yeah. I was chatting with Nal Merrigan a couple of weeks ago, and we were hypothesizing that even if you can't, like, sniff the traffic, it's an interesting, like, invasion of privacy that you could find out a lot about a person just by, like, seeing what networks they automatically connect mm, yeah, to. Yeah, which ones are, because they, like, they literally yell out Oh, yeah, for them. you connected to Starbucks Boston, you connected right. to this, you yeah, connected yeah. to that, and you just rotate through mm. all these networks, and you could find out, like, where has that device been? Sure, you'd learn a lot. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? All right, so back to testing for Back failure. to testing. Yes. How do you define a failed project for starters? I mean, what does that really mean? Like the software did not get delivered or is it, oh, you know, late and over budget? So I have a, a fairly capitalist view of, of software yep. in that my definition of failing actually has nothing to do with whether the project was over scope, under, like on time, on budget, whatever. It's entirely to do with did the customers buy it? Like, right. Did the entity that was producing it, did it produce the value that they want? If it was right. commercial, like yeah. did it make money? Was which it is, ROI which positive? Which is an easy measure. Right. Yeah. But like, it, I feel like that's the real... If it was real, free, was it used? Yeah. Like yeah. is this an open source project? Did it get the level of contributions that you were going for? Yeah, did yeah, it right. make the impact that you were going for? Mm. And I, I do appreciate, you know, when you have a captive audience at the center, you're telling them, you can still measure, do they actually like using it? Is, how much time do they spend on it? You know, in theory, if it's a required app, but they only have to spend, you know, you start getting less and less time they have to spend on it, you're doing better. Yeah, but that measurement is like a proxy. Like, mm -hmm. ultimately, it's a business that's trying to make money. Right. And so measuring, like, whether or not people are happy and they're spending more time is like a forecast for the future. Like, right. if a competitor comes along and tries to disrupt my monopoly, like, how likely are my customers to right. jump? Yeah. Uh, how high is the bar that the new guy has to jump over to steal your customers away. Right, because yeah. if you have a bunch of really unhappy customers and there's no option... They're looking for somewhere to go. Yeah, yeah. you just need to cross like whatever other competitive uh, yeah. barriers have been created. Oh, you exist? I'll <laughs> go to you. Because <laughs> screw those guys. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, I define failed projects as like ones that just didn't meet their criteria. Right. And so yeah. um, what I talk about is like they're projects that failed for a bunch of different reasons, either mm -hmm. because they never launched, they never got out the yep. door. Or, Nobody's ever used it. Or one that launched... On time, on budget, built the wrong thing. That's that's exactly it. It was on time, on budget, built the built the wrong thing. So we spent uh, eighteen months on this project with a huge bill rate. Like it's it's. I look back on it really fondly. It's one of my favorite projects I ever belonged to. <laughs> it's like some of the smartest yes. people I ever worked with were on this project. Like this company <laughs> hired like some of the smartest contractors, and we were banging out awesome stuff. We were using like really advanced tech. Wow. We had like the best ideas for like. You know how we would test it. We were going to do microservices before wow. it was really called microservices. Wow, cool. We we had like orchestration tests, and we launched this project, and everybody was like, "Yeah, we got it done. It's awesome." And nobody bought it. Oh, nobody bought like like the market wasn't ready. Right. Like, yeah. Fundamentally, the thing that we were building was a new piece of tech that didn't exist. There wasn't a competitive thing for a market that didn't exist. Right. But yeah. the business was totally confident this was going to work. Right. We will build it and they will come. Yeah, it was so confident mm. that like this was going to work and then just nobody shows up. Wow. And like that that failed. Yep. Like we did all the technical ideas of testing right, but we didn't do the market, the, the testing. market testing, right? right? Yep. right. But the right thing that we should have done is rather than doing like this elaborate architecture, was we should have thrown together a quick and dirty Rails app in three yeah. weeks. The and MVP, like, right? The yeah. Try and get product. one customer. Like, let's get one customer, like with the stripped down, super simple version of this, and see if we can sell it. 
and that would have taught them. Like we sure. would have spent like a couple thousand dollars building a thing. Let's talk about Eric. There's Eric Reese's Lean Startup where he talks about don't even build the product, build the website about the product. Right. Yeah. A sign up sheet. And sign up right? sheet. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's and your measures. How many people were willing to hand you an email address on the promise of the product? Yeah. I just think it's a really interesting way. You know, on one hand, I feel like that's deceptive. Mm-hmm. Right, because like, if enough people sign it, don't sign it, sign it. If too few people sign up, just not going to do anything about it. I guess I'll send them one email. Hey, thanks very much. Yeah. We've gone another way. Well, it's sort yeah. of the Kickstarter model, isn't it? It is, you but know? but with even a lower commitment. Right. Yeah. You, I just want an email address. And, from and you. in that way, like uh, he talks about it in the Lean Startup book, is there's a big difference between giving an email address and giving money. Right. Is like there's a different level of commitment. Is I'm willing to give my and email address at a little too. lower lower level. Sure. But yeah. if I'm actually willing to get a credit card, like I've charged them ten dollars. Like yep. that's a level of commitment. Like mm. you go around and you're pitching an idea to people and you're like, Hey, I got this thing and mm. a bunch of people will tell you, Oh, that's awesome. I'd love that. I totally sure. I totally buy that. And you're like, Well, I can take your credit card right now, pre order. Yeah. It's a totally different yeah. story oh, people hey, are willing uh, to do he. it, right? <laughs> yeah. But um, you, yeah, you've seen Kickstarters where people will buy the dream. Yeah. There's a there's a, a company in Minneapolis called Lead Pages. Um and I and I know the the owner who started it, Clay Collins, and he pivoted a idea of he had a really successful marketing block where he would talk about landing pages that convert well and he mm-hmm. would build like WordPress themes. Hmm. And then he had this he built a, a pretty large community around that. And then he had the idea of like, well, let's, you know, build a service that just makes these landing pages for you. And he sold it before he built it. Wow. Like he had all the money he needed to like build the thing. And he's like, all right, mm. well, I guess we got to. Got to make this I thing. I guess we got to do it. But there's like, there's a risk to that too. There's some laws in the U.S. that like if you take money, you have to deliver something yeah. in 90 days. So. Hmm. Yeah, get it done. You got to get something out there. It doesn't have to be full, but you got to get something so out. I wonder in how days. the I wonder how the Kickstarter model works then. If you because the the model there is you know you you pay money at your own risk and the Kickstarter isn't responsible. I guess maybe it's that. But just you, because Kickstarter isn't responsible doesn't mean the person who took the money yeah. isn't responsible. But you also are you're also pledging money. They don't charge you until they deliver. Yeah, they, that's true. Right. Yeah. So in that way, they don't start the clock. What you're really showing but, is intent. It's only at the end of the Kickstarter that they, they it's like, okay, well, now the clock starts. It's not till you deliver. They actually charge you after you made your goal. Right. That's when, when they charge all the money and you get the money and yeah. then you can go and do it. And now but the then clock starts. Now the clock starts. And if you don't make your goal, like we, we saw with that crazy watch that I talked about, yep. remember? That watch that blew, that blew up. There's, there's, yeah. you know, there's been a bunch of failed Kickstarters. So, so what I'm thinking is that even though Kickstarter isn't responsible for that money, the person who took the money certainly is, and people have the right to go yeah. after them yeah. legally. And absolutely, and I am not happened. an attorney. You should consult a lawyer for yeah, legal for advice. Sure. <laughs> but again, you see, the definition of fail project is a, is a broad thing. There's a lot of ways you can mark as failure. Mm. Yeah. And so a couple of years ago, I started my own company, and it's really kind of broadened like my idea of what success and failure is in software. Mm. So, like I used to, you know, I'd sit at a desk and I'd, I'd take a ticket and like success was like, did I get the software done? Right. Yeah. And it exposed you to like this larger world of, you know, valuable software is software that like people are willing to buy or people are willing to use. Mm-hmm. And just because something is, you know, elegant or well-designed or well-tested, outside of our little like, you know, crook of the world, nobody cares. No. Yeah. Like some of the worst software in the world makes billions of dollars. Yes. Right, sure. And beautifully Look, crafted software nobody many, many uses. Like, looking, looking at you, all those horrible, evil ERP systems that make uh, unbelievable amounts of money and it's dreadful software. Yes. Right. If you yes. look in, like, um, I've had some, some visibility into like financial systems, yeah. like things that like print stock information. Mm. And like fundamentally, it's just 
crappy code that's dropping out like CSV sheets with huge amounts of data. Yeah. But they're making billions of dollars off of this yeah. code. Because it's about the data. It's <laughs> not about the experience. They don't think about the experience of using the app. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for better or worse. So you actually look at rehabilitating systems? Like after a failed project? No, that's, that's not so much what the, what the talk is about. The talk is about um, uh, five different projects that I've been on that I kind of regard all of them as failures right. in that end sense. And then how each approached the idea of, of testing their product, testing mm -hmm. during their system, mm. now that contributed to the failure of the end system. Interesting. So um, in the case we talked about before is building the wrong thing. Is right, they yeah. did all the technical level of testing spot on, but like they failed to test the market that right. they were going into. And so fundamentally the product to see failed. If it was plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Is this actually a right. good idea? And so in another case, I was part of a, of a project that was really approaching they were trying to get to technical excellence, but mm. they were had a very like naive view of it. They were mm -hmm. very dogmatic about it, where they had like they had all the code analytics and code coverage numbers, and they were mandated to hit a hundred percent code coverage for this Java project. Which like if you have to hit a hundred percent code coverage in a Java project, I mean you're testing a lot of getters and setters, and yep. like you're wasting hash, a lot of time. Like it's it's testing stuff tests. that's not gonna break. Like, yeah. that's never gonna break. But the tests will break when you make updates to the code. Absolutely. But the problem that they were breaking is so all of their, their systems were tested at a very at a unit test level with 100% coverage. But yet, out of a team of 10, there were two people who were full-time responsible for bugs. And they, they were always on bugs. Wow. Even though they had 100% code coverage. Like, how... That, that doesn't... Wait a second. How does that... <laughs> what? What the... That, the problem was, like, no two systems would ever talk together right. in the same way. And they had done, like, this database-level integration where there were multiple systems sharing the same database and things There's would, like, trouble. shift around and automatically happen. And so they were fundamentally testing the wrong thing. They were hmm. spending all of their time and all of their resources hitting these arbitrary metrics at a unit test level. And they weren't looking at integration or system testing in a way to actually expose, here's some fundamental problems that are, that are happening. Now, I got to think with that kind of code coverage, there were a whole class of errors that never occurred. And it's very hard to measure the impact of errors that never happened. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So when you hit 100%, you're doing all of these weird null checkings at like very, very, well, I mean, a lot of Java is just about null checking, right? <laughs> but Java, but it's <laughs> all about managing the nulls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Java is really about setting variables to null and then checking later that they're not null. <laughs> <laughs> That's mean. <laughs> so, so this project had tons of, of unit tests around like these niggly little edge cases that would happen way down in the code that would never actually happen in production. Right. Like you could reason about it and you're like, you know what, rather than writing a unit test, why don't we just put like some asserts like directly in the code and like, sure. should this ever happen, let's log it and know about it. But yeah. logically, yeah. I don't see it ever happening. But building a test around it is just Know about those. And then spend more of your time like writing integration tests or, or doing infrastructure work to like, pull apart these pieces that like are obviously failures yeah. that yeah you can't put some arbitrary metric on it like you can't produce a good managerial report that mm. says yes we're going to improve this number by 10 percent by the end of the quarter <laughs> right. like you can't put those numbers on it but the the software people 
obviously can look at it and see like, well, there's a problem. We got to get rid of this shared database. This is mm-hmm. this is the problem that yeah, is causing architect- all of our problems. Yeah, this is an architectural failure, of yeah. a, a decision failure way up at the top that we're now covering up in a tremendous amount of code and testing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. We definitely encountered at Strange Loop the issue of deep, you know, deep testing that utterly blew apart when you updated the app. To the point hmm. where I think twice in the course of, of Strange Loop's history, we threw away the entire test platform and built it over again. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, we cared about the product. The product made money. But you know, we really wanted it to be better at testing. But there was a point where it's like it became a Gordinian knot. Yeah. It was just so much stuff. Yeah. It wasn't worth fixing all those tests. It was easier to write them new. Yeah. I've definitely been a part of projects where you get into that situation. So the comment that that came in from the previous show about mocking, I have certainly been on projects where like the tests for an individual class is, you know, 45 to 90 lines of mock setup code. Wow. And then two lines of asserting that the mock happened. And like you look at the (laughs) test and the test tells me nothing at all. Like I can't learn anything. (laughs) It's like these bizarre nested things that Mm. talk about, oh, we're going to make sure that this lower level repository returns this in this format. But Billy Hollis would say, if you got all that code just to test two lines of code, you must suck as a coder. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're incentivized to write lines of code per day. Yeah. (laughs) Because you can crank out a lot of test code with all that infrastructure mm. that represents lots of lines. Oh, I was productive. <laughs> I cut and pasted my ass off today. <laughs> I'm coughing up phlegm all day long. I'm productive, too. Nice. <laughs> it's just what are you producing? No. That's the question. If you're being uh, measured and incentivized based on <laughs> amount of phlegm produced, then you're good to go. That's right. I've got, got a phlegm engine here <laughs> turning back into energy, yeah. And I'm thinking about, was it, was it Martin Fowler had the test pyramid that talked about it's mostly unit tests and a, a non-trivial number of integration tests, UI tests of the so small, smaller bit. And then there is no substitute for manual exploratory testing. Like mm-hmm. There's some things you just have to go do and see yourself. Absolutely. And there, there is a lot of truth to the software pyramid in that, um, you know, you can afford to build more unit tests because each individual one is cheaper. Right. Mm-hmm. However... I think the metaphor kind of breaks down because it also implies through the structure that like you should have a lot of unit tests. Right. Yeah. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I like to think of it as tests should address risk. Right. What kind of risk is your system in? Like unit tests ad- address like a functional risk. Is I have like a complex conditional. I have a state machine. I have yeah. something that does something interesting. Right. Unit tests are great for exploring that risk. Right. But if your app is basically transforming H or SQL to HTML and back, yeah. there's not a lot of functional things happening that you need to do and, that you know, for. In those, in those routines or those pieces that have, that, that can change a lot based on the input, mutation yeah. testing turns out to be a really good idea for those kinds yeah. of things, right? Absolutely. If you have things that can change, you use mutation testing. If you just have multiple systems together, like if you have a, a shared database in the other example, you should have a lot of tests that address that shared database. Mm, right. That, like, probably actually call a database that looks like that shared database right. from multiple systems. Like, that is the risk. You should be testing your risk. Yeah. Um, and system tests address, like, orchestration and UI risk. And, like, is my flow really complicated? Is it mm. likely to break with lower systems? Mm, right. And so, before we start thinking about testing, like, if you start with the test pyramid, you've basically laid in what you're going to do is we're going right. to write a lot yeah. of unit tests. Right. And I think as long as our app happens to fit this model, it's going to be great. And if it doesn't, it's not going to help us. Yeah. I think instead you need to step back and think about, here's the project we're doing. 
what's the risk involved? Mm-hmm. Is this a market that I know is this going to work? Mm-hmm. If not, you should probably start with like user tech, like yeah, build something testing. simple and get something out there. And that's the test you write. Your database, your shared database uh, idea reminds me that, you know, if that was me, I would be building tests where you're, you're checking this, you know, where one record steps on another one, where two people update the same record at the same time. Not to test the database, because we know the database can handle it, but how does your app react to that? Yeah. 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 How do you resolve those kind of things? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? It must be that happy time again. Yes, it's time to proudly announce that .NET Rocks now has 100% joke coverage retroactively for all shows. Let's run the test suite and see what happens. Uh, well, it uh, looks like I have some refactoring to do. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first... Have you ever used a product that was so bad you wondered whether the people who created it had ever used it themselves? Telerik has been building the best UI controls in the world for over a decade now, but more importantly, they've been using them in their own projects. That means they know what it takes to build real-world applications, and Telerik knows what makes developers want to pull their hair out, having shed some of their own. <laughs> no more silly Northwind demos. Get real UI for real applications. Download Telerik DevCraft today and enjoy the most complete set of user interface components for .NET desktop, mobile, and web development. Try it today at Telerik.com slash DevCraft. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Josh Quintus. Congratulations, Josh. Yay. Golf clap for you, sir. Absolutely. Josh just won the Telerik DevCraft collection, a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. And uh, Todd, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, <clears throat> I've been playing a lot of video games again lately. Okay. So I'd probably build a new gaming rig. All right. I don't know. So uh, at the keynote here, um, tr- uh, Troy Hunt talked a little bit about uh, Doom, like classic Doom. And he was yep. talking about like all kinds of you know, devices that people have hacked Doom onto. Yeah. But they just came out with a new Doom. Yeah. Like, oh, and really? it's awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> it feels just like the old one. And They're I totally want to... Visually wanna... impressive, that yeah. one. Yeah. But it has like the, the, the super easy feel like... Um, uh, Serious Sam, if you ever played those kind of mm-hmm. games, where like a lot of like shooters today, like are they're they're tied up in the mechanics of like you mm. only have thirty bullets and then you have to reload and then you have to duck behind a car and make sure you don't get shot and that sort of and that's more accurate for sure. But like sometimes it's Is fun it to just fun? To just get dropped into a room with basically unlimited ammo, unlimited health, and a thousand demons in front of you. And mm. It's just it's more fun. So I'd probably <laughs> I'd probably be boring and. and build a new gaming rig right, All right. Now. <laughs> get an oculus for it i don't know so i've i'm kind of down on that like yeah. I, i've used an oculus and i've used a hololens and i've used a few other things and i don't i don't get it yet no okay. I mean, I'm, I'm just behind the curve you just gotta you just gotta meet the right game for it i do i and, think that's and first it. person shooters are not them 
I don't think so. Yeah, because the running mechanics are so hard on on people in general. And I think I'd give myself a heart attack. Because, (laughs) like, it's just too real. Doom is scary. Yeah. Doom was scary three feet away. Yeah, I don't feel like I actually want to feel like I've literally been dropped into hell. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think I want that. Yeah. No, I totally (laughs) get it. Uh, yeah, the, I remember Bioshock scaring this not yeah. out of me too. I wouldn't want that game on my face. That was that a freaks great me game. Out. Yeah, no two ways about it. I play cards. Nice yeah. and darts. You play and darts. darts. There yeah. you go. I throw sharp objects. Yeah. It's fun. I wouldn't mind playing like Kerbal Space Program on the Oculus. <laughs> yeah, fly spaceships cool. on my face. Yeah, I that might that. be pretty cool. All right, well, let's dive back into this thing because I think testing of websites is especially difficult. It is. Because JavaScript is sort of test resistant right off the bat. Oh, it mm. is. The web as as a whole is just well, to, you know, to quote Crockford, is the most hostile development environment imaginable. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, JavaScript as a language to start with, you know, has has some problems. Like I like it. It's just it, it has some problems. But mm-hmm. then you throw it into this environment where you're shipping code every time the user visits. You're shipping the application down to them right. over this network that like is kind of flaky. And you really don't know what machine they've got, what their right. platform is. Like yeah. how are they going to run this dynamically created yeah. app? Sometimes part of the application will just fail to transmit. Like you might have like one of the services you talked to, you just had a DNS there. failure, yeah. Yeah. Sure. and like one script doesn't fall on your page, mm-hmm. and so now you have like a half application that's trying to run, and then it's running in the user's environment, which could be any of thousands of different configurations, sure. browsers with different plugins, yep. and you were just hoping that it all works, right? Yeah. And so when you approach testing on it, um, you always have to pick a subset. You're mm. always picking like, well, we can test these browsers because they're easy enough to automate that we can be productive with right. it. Yeah. And so then it we're works well t- with Selenium. Right, yeah. basically. <laughs> you're basically limited by what can you find a Selenium driver for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then you're also testing like probably a set of happy path cases, a few th- like known errors, but you can't test everything. Like right. You can't test like well, everything's what a if, lot. What if Angular JS fails to load on my page? You probably don't have a test for that, but it'll happen. Yes. And like I have some insight because of the error monitoring tool that I run in that it happens a, mm. a lot. Like people fail to load Jan- Angular yeah. entirely. There was I uh, mean, you, you can't proceed. You're not going to work around that, but at least you should have a coherent failure mode. Yeah, like catastrophic failure usually users can recover from but right. what if it's like not catastrophic like what if the majority of your application runs and downloads but what if stripe fails to fall on your page and all of a sudden hmm. this thing you're using to like automate capturing credit cards isn't there yeah and so you have a whole yeah. credit card form that like either Doesn't isn't work. going to work or worse will actually send credit card data to yeah. somewhere you don't want or it to, to nowhere yeah. right worse. it's like oh crap how does this I, happen so here's just something i thought of and i want to know what your thought about this is todd if you're linking javascript libraries maybe not angular but maybe another javascript library would you prefer to download a version of that that's known and then publish it with your app or would you prefer to link in the meta tag directly to the URL of where the project is and download the latest version? It, it depends. So for, for big things, if it was like... Like uh, jQuery. If it's jQuery example. or Angular or Lodash or those sort of things, mm. I'll usually just go to their CDN and, and right. link them. I mean, if it's and, a small project... Like jQuery, you mean you specify the version number as part of the, the request. That's so true. You're definitely getting a certain version number. But the advantage of getting it from jQuery is they've CDN'd it. Yeah. It's not coming from California. If you're not in California, it's coming from your local CDN. Right. And so when you, when you do that, if it's something big and trusted, you can, you can have some confidence. If it's, you know, Joe's project, then you, have, you run a couple of risks just linking. One, you, you risk, 
on the on the runtime front of it is like is there you know their server up yeah, when your are users requested. Yeah. On the security thing, kind of a throwback to our other thing is maybe their server isn't secure right. and somebody like injects something it's into that JavaScript <laughs> that can like steal data <laughs> from your visitors. Sure. So why wouldn't you download it and, and add it with your app because you're saving that disk space? I mean, why wouldn't you have it statically linked? I, I tend to. So for yeah. a... Uh, Anything like serious that I'm building, like if I'm, it's got a significant amount of JavaScript in mm -hmm. it and it's going to do something, I bundle everything together into my own scripts. Yeah. And so there isn't a jQuery JS anywhere in there. Right. There's a scripts.min.js yeah. that is my thing, that is everything a I bundled, need, and I know right, exactly what it is. Limited. Right. Yeah. It's, it's if I'm, you know, putting something together quick and dirty, and I just, you know, I just need to slap a little jQuery it seems, together. It <laughs> seems smart to me to do that because you're not taking a, dependency right and you we all know what happens can happen when you do that last that last uh, kerfuffle around oh yeah with the, the the trimming characters the trimming character thing, thing. that everybody had a dependency on and left, left pad yeah left pad and he <laughs> yeah. takes it out of the library i mean at the same time the advantage of go, going and getting you know jQuery from the jQuery servers is if there was a critical patch, it's going to be there first. Yes. True. The CDN effect means it's going to load faster and yep. it's not going to cost you money. Like it's not your bandwidth. Yep. Now, mm -hmm. Right. The, so yeah, the, true. the customer gets a better experience right up until they don't, right up mm. until it's missing yeah. and the thing's broken. Well, so there's also just a runtime downside. And yeah. so like at uh, mm. Google I.O. a couple, uh, what was that, two weeks ago now, there was a, well, two weeks ago from when we recorded mm -hmm. this, um, there was a great talk about um, runtime download failures where they published some internal metrics about Chrome on mobile devices. Hmm. And so Chrome on 2G, Chrome on 3G, Chrome on 4G, and like mm. how many just HTTP requests just fail? <laughs> yeah. Like it doesn't get out the door. Like right. the, the, the antenna wasn't on, yeah. the DNS didn't come back, whatever. Something, yeah. And it's like, Routing failure. it's like between three and 10%. Wow. And wow. so imagine, so like imagine you pull down your app or, or a, a user hits, you know, .NET rocks. Right. And the first request comes down, they pull your HTML down. Yep. Your HTML references the jQuery CDN. So now the whole process starts again. And mm. it has to go out and say, hey, where's jQuerycDN.com? Yeah, I'm going to get yeah. that. I'm going to do a DNS lookup. I'm going to do an SSL handshake. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do all mm -hmm. that. If the antenna fails for that request, now the user's left in the state where like, they yeah. have .NET rocks.com. Right. They don't have jQuery. And right. basically the end result is, hey, guys, your page isn't loading. Right. Page it's broken. white. And yeah. so that's that's the advantage of hosting it all together is like they've already made one successful connection to right. your to your domain, to your server. Right. They can, if Which it's they had to do because that's where the main page is. Exactly. Yeah. So it's way more likely that a subsequent request to that same domain is going to work. There's less hops to go through right. to figure that out. And this, is, this goes back to what we were talking about, just thinking through the process of how you're going to do stuff to begin with before you even start testing. Yeah. Yeah, it's more fundamental than let's test our code. Let's, are we writing the right code? Are we doing it the right way? I mean, that being said, if jQuery doesn't load, okay, the page is broken. Refresh, reload the page. Right? Like there's, you don't want to actually recover from that. No, but how does the user know? Yeah, right. Like what, if what, the user's stuck on, and you have like your like maybe your uh, sign up button, your you know mm -hmm. sign up for the fan club button. Maybe that button just doesn't work. Uses jQuery, mm, and so the user yeah. enters their information, they hit the button, and like nothing happens. Yeah, mm -hmm. and like dang those guys, this thing doesn't work. They, yeah. they just get angry. They don't know that like they're in a half loaded state. Like how do you detect that? Yeah. So maybe like you write a little bit of JavaScript that like you know a few seconds after page load, if jQuery's not there, you just do like. 
a window.reload action. But at the same <laughs> yeah, you could recover it yourself, right? Yeah. At, at the same time, though, I think most savvy web users know that if they go to a website and maybe they get the title and it just sort of hangs, or even worse, you get that sort of no f styling, just basic HTML layout, that's even worse. You that know, seems that to have happened to me a lot more yeah, recently. Yeah. I've <laughs> just, I just yeah, tried problems again. with Google font failures. You know? yeah. yeah. Sometimes Google Fonts just won't load. I took I took Google Fonts out of like my main um, loading thing for for TrackJS and for PubConf mm -hmm. because like I would see just loading like it couldn't find GooglePonts.com. Right. Hmm. So like, well, I don't want that actually stopping my page. I'll, yeah. Like, load it after the page. I don't care if the fonts. Yeah. And, and re-render. Yeah. And Google has a DNS problem. Everybody and has a problem. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's the truth, man. It's the, the impact is absolutely huge. Yeah. And, it, and, and that's again, because what what failure modes are reasonable to survive, and how do you you know do you want to so, bother? And so then, we could put this all in the category of minimizing external dependencies. Absolutely. That's yeah. a good way to classify it. And it, it's in this way that like. Testing leads very nicely into monitoring mm. because you can't test everything, right? Right. Like there's uh, there's a law of diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. As you get more and more, uh, you spend more and more time testing it, the less you're getting out of it. Mm -hmm. But there's always more things happening, and so you should be monitoring your production environments to like know when you miss something. Yep. Yeah. Because I would argue the other way, which is CDNs tend to be more reliable than your server. They do and, tend to be. And yep. And they're faster. And, uh, and it decreases the load on your server. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm definitely hosting the, the daughter's uh, webcomic. Right. Right? And it's yeah. like, look, when she drops a new page, all of her fans hammered the snot out of that server. Yeah. The CDN keeps us alive. Yeah. But when you use a CDN, you should pick a CDN and yeah. go with it. Like, right. you've chosen your CDN. You should put your assets on that, on that CDN yep. as opposed to, hey, I'm going to load a few things from CloudFront, and this thing's mm. coming from Cloudflare, and then this thing's coming from Mac CDN. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you put all of these CDNs in place, now you have these lookups with everybody. Yeah, I know. You're definitely impacting the value there. You know, but one smart, well-crafted CDN has definitely... You know, I've got the benchmarks. It can make such a difference on the site, sure. especially as the traffic volumes go up. Sure. So it's, a, it's an interesting truth. And, you know, we talk about unit testing, integration testing, and so forth. Load testing. Load testing. It's a different creature. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. And, a, and a difficult creature, too. Like, just as a guy who's done a ton of it, I'm more down on load testing than most people are. Because I think I've done enough that I'm like, people are weird, man. Yeah. I, I, the, the people want load testing to tell them the site will survive on Saturday. And, it, and it, it's just a lie, you know? The only thing I can do absolutely reliably with load testing is compare one version to another and yeah. say, this was faster, this was slower. Yeah. That's about all I feel like I can really do. The but I can't the answer the, will this survive the onslaught this weekend? Mm. The valuable parts of load testing is I've never been able to, I've never been in a scenario where I found a load test is valuable to like keep around. It's like I wrote something new, and I want to see how well does this perform when I start throwing a thousand transactions a second Compared at it. Compared to the previous version. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, I'll build something and I'll run it and I'll see how it goes. And but That's like, it. I, I don't do it forever. I don't no. do it with every release. I do it when I think something interesting. Well, you always come back to the same old problem. Like, the problem with load testing is not pass or fail, right? It's a, it's it's really it's kind of subjective. Yeah. Is that fast enough? Yeah. Is it faster than the previous version? Mm. And if it's not, is it slow enough that you should do something about it? Like, because fixing speed problems is not a trivial thing. Yeah. Is it is it good enough for what I expected right. would happen with this change? Yeah. Is this going to meet customer expectations? And while we're doing that, I just went to web page test and ran .NET Rocks through it. Got an A. Yeah. Woo! We, we're we're really good. Well, and you know the real reason I was running it was I was just thinking about well how many 
resources are we loading? And actually, the page is pretty lean. It's 39 requests on a first view of the homepage. That's, that's uh, low. That's app V next, man. Yeah, it's a low number. Butt. The total page size is gigantic, though, because <laughs> of, and it's because of the, the images, our, our big background pictures, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. which yeah. are loaded post facto, so the yeah. page is already up. Like I know we've done the right things there, and we still got A's for it, mm. but yeah, the full rendering of the fo of the page on the first load is like three megs. It's not small. Do you use stuff like web page tests as part of your, your test sequence? Or yeah. I, I I do. Yeah. Um, I don't. I have never automated it, but I've I've talked to some people who have made it part of like a normal build cycle. And yeah. I believe they have a premium product that does. Something they do, like and, that it, and you can put it into a build cycle. And, I'm, and I'll happily plug them. I get no conversation from them. Yep. We worked with them back in the Strange Loop days and stuff. And it was exact. You know, the main thing was how fast is this from India? How fast is this from the UK? How yeah. you know that mm. basic set. I wanted those numbers as part of my overall test suite. Mm -hmm. yeah. like, and again, it's, these are all sort of threshold values. Is it fast enough? Yeah, for you the know? market that we're in and who, what, like what the thing that we're doing, is mm -hmm. it good enough? Is it good enough? Is it that acceptable? And it was nice to use test sets like that to say, hey, I'm going to pay for this CDN, but I'm going to pay the premium to actually make sure I'm using the CDN in Europe. Mm -hmm. Now let's see what the web page test results from Europe look like. Oh, we can see the benefit of the CDN there. We've lowered the overall page time by this much. You know, those kinds of things. So there, there really is a depth to this testing you can do. Oh yeah, you but can you can spend an infinite amount of time and money going after testing, <laughs> and, yeah, and that's sure. kind of like my fundamental point is that like any one of these niches, you can spend so much time and money and get bogged down in trying to be the perfect thing of testing. But what we should do instead is we should consider the risks of our project. Is right. like what's likely to sink this. What's thing? What's good enough? Well, I only and we should spend the time on those parts of our test suite that yeah. like, we think are actually yeah. going to sink the project. I right. only dove deep on the whole Europe thing because we had a bunch of European customers. Right. right, And they were unhappy because the site was hosted out of the west coast of, of, of the U.S. Yeah. And so it's like, hey, well, if I set up this stuff, and, and then, but again, you know, the, the tester's law. It's like you do the test before you make any changes, then you make the changes, do the test again. Can you actually see a difference? Yeah. Like what's right. measurable? And the, and the opinion of the customer isn't your primary source of data. I mean, it's it's not that it's not important, but if that's the only thing you focus on, you know, now you're living in another subjective realm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I love this stuff. Yeah. I think it's really it's interesting. Cool. But it it's not the traditional testing thing that that I think a lot of developers are focused on. Yeah, a lot of a lot of talks and and blogs I've read about testing, I feel like have a very like. Um, single-minded, dogmatic kind of perspective. Like, this is the way to do it. This yeah. is how you approach testing. Like, this is the way. This of is course the you right write unit tests. Like, and, and I feel like that's the hard part. It's mm -hmm. like, there's no, there's no silver bullet. We need to be thinking critically about the things that we're doing. And the broader the perspective we can get to understand the larger universe we're operating mm -hmm. in, the better. Like, mm -hmm. as developers, we need to get out of, like, get out of the cubicle, get out in front of the screen and like understand what are we solving for who? Like sure. what is this thing actually valuable for? Yeah. What does success mean? Not to me, but like yeah, to right. that customer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If I'm if I work for Acme Co and like it's not whether or not I deliver this project on scope, on schedule, on budget. Right. It's like, does Acmeco sell this product? Are we going to grow 10% next month? Am I going to get my bonus? Am I still going to be employed right. next year? Yeah. Or is it number those of people using it or how many downloads you got or yeah, any of those sure. should, different metrics for success? I think we'd all be way more successful talking about those things. And, and when things go wrong on a project, 
we'd be better equipped to deal with that because we could say, hey, you know, I know this is going to be late. We're going to be three months late, but it's fine. Here's the thing that we found. It's going to, you know, customers wouldn't have bought it if we'd shipped it then. Right. We're going to do this thing or better. We're doubling the value XYZ, to the customer. And it's going to be better and we're all going to be better off for it. Yeah, I'd like, like to that. hear some more stories of failure because that makes me happy. You like failure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I got, uh, here's, here's one of my favorite ones. Okay. So many, many years ago, this is, this is one of the first, um, software development projects I was on. Because I used to be on the infrastructure side and I switched over. But one of the first ones on, I was on, I was building a custom CMS or a custom CRM inside of Salesforce okay. for this manufacturing company. They had like tons of different like divisions, sales teams, and they were going to like consolidate under one umbrella in, inside right, of salesforce.com. Right. Um, and so <sighs> Salesforce, if you've ever written it, is not, it's not the best software development environment in the world. Right. Um, really? Yeah. I, yeah. So you got to write code and put it, in the, it into their cloud. No, um, and, and hope for the best. Yeah. So you write in this language called Apex, which is kind of like Java, but not Java. And right. you, you write it inside of Eclipse, which, uh, or an, uh, a custom IDE based on Eclipse that Salesforce gives you. Oh, no. And what's exceptionally awesome is you're, you're writing some code. You're, you're banging something out and you want to see like I used to be like a happy saver. Mm -hmm. Like I would hit, you know, control S all the time. Yeah, Twitch, just make sure, Twitch, yeah. Twitch. Except when I did it inside of their IDE, every time I did that, it would take my code that I was working on, package it up in a SOAP request mm -hmm. and send it to their API where it would compile it, oh, no. return the results back to my IDE. And all this time, the, the UI was locked. Oh. Like, so every time I hit save, my, my screen would lock for two to 10 seconds wow. while wow, it indeed. was remotely compiling it. So, I mean, it was amazing, right? The other thing that, that um, Salesforce had was they had this, this uh, rule that in order to deploy your code into the production environment, you had to hit 70% code coverage. So really? You, you huh. check, you check built in, into the environment. It was built into the environment. Wow. You would write your code, you would write your test, you'd go in, you could do anything you want in the test environment. But if you wanted to deploy, like hit, hit the prod button, it would run all your tests and you had to hit 70% to go. And so it was, it was a noble goal, right? They were trying to do something yeah, good. Yeah, but I can think of people doing horrible things just to get past that goal. Well, you see, the people who typically wrote in Salesforce weren't from um, a software development background. Sure. It was a lot of, like, analysts who'd learned just enough to get by. Sure, yeah. Yeah, the senior sales guy, that right. kind of thing. People and who so, had to do this. So the, quote, the accepted answer, the ones that were, like, marked as correct in their forums and stuff like that, often had what I call assertion-free testing. Right. Where it would just go over objects and call everything. Sometimes in a try catch berry. Right. Just to call every function and hit these code coverage metrics. Because mm -hmm. like that's that's what they needed to release, Easy right? Way, yeah. And so we had all of these assertion free testing because like this was like some of our first experience with Salesforce. We're like, right. I don't know why they want us to do it. It's fine. Let's just yeah. let's How do bad it. could it be? Let's just launch. that big a deal. <laughs> so obviously obviously this project was oh, it was yeah. so it was so good, yeah, and it yeah. failed. It failed miserably. Like we'd launch this thing, and like every time we'd change a field, something else would fall oh, over. We awesome. we spent a year on this thing before eventually the salespeople just said, "You know what? It's not worth it. We're going to stick with our spreadsheets." Project right. canceled. We're not doing this. <laughs> and bye. So, bye. <laughs> That's brutal. And so in in this case, this so was just like demoralizing when that happens. You know? Yeah. You put all that good time in trying to make things right, and then they just they pull a plug, and it's just gone. Yep. It's just. But I mean, that's where like you have to look at the end goal, yeah. right? Is we spent a lot of time like trying to get different things running, and like there's we had so many problems in this project, and we we weren't well equipped to like be successful. Mm -hmm. But we weren't paying attention to like 
what how do we get to that end goal really fast yeah and we weren't testing the well the i mean how much parts. software just don't have clear goal posts except you know the the principal contributor or the principal you know senior manager just saying yep that's good yeah. Which they never say. Yeah. Right? If anything, you you get to the mark and they move the goalposts. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're ahead of schedule. Oh, let's let's pile well, let's some, add more some more stuff in. on. I'll yeah. punish you for being productive. I was talking That's with totally somebody who who had their uh, how they manage like the success of projects in their companies. They have like a stoplight approach. Like the red projects are in danger. Yellow projects, you know, are probably good to go but right. have a few risks and they don't have green projects because if it's green they add scope and push it to yellow right Make it, put it back into the yellow <laughs> you're doing clearly doing too well we can't tolerate that we're gonna mess that up for you yeah oh, we man. don't we don't ever have success yeah. we just want controlled failure that's it <laughs> failure with intent i love it well what's next for you todd well, so I spend most of my time these days on uh, on TrackJS, mm-hmm. where um, where we're JavaScript error monitoring. We we check out a bunch of stuff about how things are failing in production. We were talking about earlier how how hard JavaScript testing is, and yeah, that's, we're kind of reinforcing that. Like no, that, no. you've we, been working we, on that product for a while. Man. Yeah, it's our it's our three year birthday. Yeah. Congratulations! Yeah, yeah we're gonna cool. we're gonna throw a big party in Minneapolis if anybody's there. Uh, we're gonna rent out a an awesome local tap room and. Drink a bunch of beer and talk about all the crazy JavaScript things that we've done in the last three years. Because crazy JavaScript things, never heard of such a. Oh, no. there, are so ma- there are so many JavaScript in the same sentence. So, actually. so actually, not that long ago, I was playing with um, the HTML form elements. So, okay. you know, what can brackets go wrong? form. There's like these old throwback things that any input you put into a form, the name of those inputs will just become properties on the form object in mm. JavaScript. Nice. So if you have like a reference to it, you can say form.name, you'll get the input of the name. Yeah. Except what if you do things like put an ID input inside of it? Or what if you put a action element? Like nice. the things that you would normally reference on it get all these bizarre problems that can happen in a yeah, very so strange. It, it's, it's fun to see all of those those sort of uh, problems. Well, Absolutely. Man, thanks for being here with us today. It's great. And thanks for having me. I really like these conversations. Yeah, I hope too. we can do it again. Too. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a boy. Life is hard.